Music existed in the presence of God before He made this world, before He made the universe. The angels sang in celebration of God's creative power as He made everything. God Himself sings. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his series with part six of The Holy Spirit's Influence. We're exploring three primary effects of being under the influence of the Holy Spirit, a love for God-centered music, a pattern of thankfulness, and a heart of submission. As we've learned throughout this series on Ephesians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, all three qualities will be present in the life of a person who is filled by the Spirit through the Scriptures. And today, Tom will continue to examine why God commanded musical worship as one of the ways we express our worship to Him. Let's open our Bibles and join Tom now with today's message on The Word Unleashed. First Chronicles 15 Verse 22 tells us about his qualifications. Shenaniah, the chief of the Levites, was in charge of the singing. He gave instruction in singing because he was skillful. There's his qualification for this job. And notice in verse 27, you see his job description. Now, this is again describing the bringing of the ark to Jerusalem. Now, David was clothed with a robe of fine linen with all the Levites who were carrying the ark and the singers and Chenaniah, the leader of the singing with the singers. David also wore an ephod of linen. So you have this musical director. Now, if you fast forward, that David now lived about a thousand years before Christ. If you fast forward 600 years to the very end of Old Testament history, you see exactly the same thing going on. 600 years later. Look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 42. Here you have a number of men mentioned, and the singers sang with Jezrahiah, their leader. Verse 46. For in the days of David and Asaph, in ancient times, that would have been for for Nehemiah's time, 600 years earlier... There were leaders of the singers, songs of praise and hymns of thanksgiving to God. So Nehemiah, as he reestablishes the worship of God with the people of God returned from Babylonian exile, sets up the same sort of system where there is a leader of the music. 55 of the Psalms, by the way, begin with the phrase for the choir director. So Music in the Old Testament worship of God was a huge thing. A choir and a choir director and an amazing orchestra. Those who are scholars in the worship of ancient Israel write this, no service of worship, no service of worship was celebrated in the temple without a minimum of 12 singers and 12 instrumentalists. Never was anything happening in the temple without 12 at least singers and 12 instrumentalists. Music was part of the worship of God in Old Testament Israel. But it wasn't just the Levites who played and sang. There was congregational singing in ancient Israel. There were a variety of musical instruments. There were vocalists. There was a choir. There was a music director. And there was congregational singing. But understand this. These things were not David's idea. It's not that David woke up one morning and said, you know, I think it'd be a good idea for us to have these things as part of the worship of God. 
They came by divine command, the command for singing by the congregation, for choirs, for musical instruments, and for a music director was from the Lord. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 29. 2 Chronicles 29. This is in the days of Hezekiah. So this is after David. Things had gotten bad. The temple worship had essentially ceased for all intents and purposes. And now Hezekiah is restoring it. A, a godly king. Second Chronicles 29, look at verse 25. As he's restoring the temple worship, he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals and harps and lyres. Now watch this. According to the command of David and of Gad the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet, for the command for these things was from the Lord through his prophets. So David just didn't decide this would be a good idea. This is what God prescribed to be done in his worship in ancient Israel. Now don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying necessarily that these things are commanded for every church today. I'm saying this does establish the pattern that this was prescribed by God. This was the pattern of ancient Israel. All of those things that God commanded were intended to encourage and support the singing of God's people. Look at verse 26. The Levites stood with the musical instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets, Then Hezekiah gave the order to offer the burnt offering on the altar. When the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord also began with the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. While the whole assembly worshiped, the singers also sang and the trumpets sounded and all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. The point is, While the singers sang and the instruments played, the congregation was involved in worshiping as well. And since many of the psalms call for the people of God all to sing and worship, they were joining in as well. That's the Old Testament pattern. Now, let's move from that to the New Testament arguments for including musical instruments in the church's worship. Because some look at the the New Testament and they come to strange conclusions. Men we respect, John Calvin, for example, advocated that in the church we should sing psalms only and never with any instruments. The Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli excluded all music from the corporate worship. There shouldn't be any music, he said, in the corporate worship. There are churches today, like, for example, the Church of Christ, it's common here in Texas, would say things like this, the instruments in the choir, those, it's true, those were in Old Testament Israel, we won't deny that, but you can't find them in the New Testament, that's not for the New Testament church. That's part of the ceremonies of the Old Covenant. There's currently a battle raging in some Presbyterian churches about whether they should have choirs and instruments, and if they should only sing metrical psalms as opposed to anything else. What about it? What position should we take? Well, there are several clear arguments against those positions and in support of using all these helps in our worship in music, all kinds of instruments in the worship of God, both privately as well as in corporate worship. What are the arguments? Here they are. Number one, the Old Testament divine prescription has never been repealed. The Old Testament divine prescription has never been repealed. 
God himself prescribed, as I showed you, the use of instruments and choirs and music directors in the Old Testament, and no New Testament text forbids the use of those things in worship. It's not like the sacrificial system or all the high and holy days. That ceremony is all dismissed in the New Testament. Explicitly, we are told that those things are not to be a part of our worship. That's not true with these things. With the high and holy days, Colossians 2 makes it clear. Sabbaths, new moon festivals, annual festivals, no man is to judge us with respect to those things. Hebrews makes it clear the Old Testament sacrificial system is gone. What about all those laws about putting people to death for various crimes? Well, Romans 13 makes it clear those have all been transitioned to secular government, and now the government bears the sword. So all those things are changed in the New Testament. Everything I've shown you from the Old Testament in regard to the worship of God in music, there's no indication in the New Testament that it's ever changed. It's not like the ceremonial law where those things are explicitly set aside in the New Testament. There's a second New Testament argument for using musical instruments in the corporate worship of God, and it's this. The New Testament command to sing psalms has in it an implied approval of the use of instruments. The New Testament command to sing psalms has in it an implied approval of the use of instruments. We are told, as we've seen both in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, to sing psalms. Speaking of the Old Testament Psalter, the book of Psalms. And the psalms themselves prescribe, command the use of instruments in worship. This is true in the psalm titles, for example. You know those little descriptions that come right before the psalm? You realize those are ancient. That is, they existed at least 200 years before Christ because they're in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Hebrews, the Jewish people, considered them part of the canon, part of the inspired text, and not part of the notes. They even numbered it as a verse in Hebrew, which sort of throws off the versification between Hebrew and English. But more importantly, both our Lord and his apostles considered those inscriptions at the beginning of the Psalms as authoritative, and they argued on the basis of them. You can see this in Mark 12, our Lord uses one, in Acts 2, and Acts 13. In all three of those cases, our Lord and the apostles used those little inscriptions at the beginning of the Psalm as authoritative. And so, notice what those inscriptions say. Look at Psalm 4 as an example. Psalm 4, for the choir director on stringed instruments. Psalm 5, for the choir director for flute accompaniment. Psalm 6, for the choir director with stringed instruments upon an eight-string lyre, etc., etc., etc. Over and over again, the psalms that we are commanded to sing instruct that they be sung with musical instruments. But not just in the titles. It's also true in the body of the psalm. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Psalm 33.2. This isn't in one of those titles or inscriptions. This is inside the body of the psalm itself. Psalm 33.2. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him. By the way, that's our word translating make melody from our verse in Ephesians 5.19. Sing praises to him or make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Psalm 98, verse 5, sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. 
But turn with me to Psalms 92 because this one's unique because of its inscription. Its title, Psalm 92, is a psalm, a song for the Sabbath day. So this was to be sung in the corporate worship of the people of God on the day God prescribed for him to be worshipped by his people. Now, notice what the psalm says, verse 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your unfailing love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. How? With the ten-string lute and with the harp, with resounding music upon the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the work of your hands. So the psalm titles, the body of the psalms, tell us, the very psalms we're commanded to sing, tell us to worship God with instruments. By the way, 55 of the psalms that Paul commands us to sing are addressed to the choir director. That sanctions both the use of a choir and of a music director. Also, the Hebrew word translated psalms in the Old Testament and the Greek word in both the Septuagint and the New Testament, all of that can mean, and originally did mean, to sing accompanied by a musical instrument. That's what the word psalm means. It means to pluck the strings on an instrument. So the very command to sing psalms is at its heart at least permission and perhaps a command to use musical instruments. Harold Honer, in his commentary, writes, Although one cannot be dogmatic, the New Testament church may have followed the Old Testament and Judaistic practice as it had in other instances by singing the psalms with a stringed instrument. In addition, go back to, now to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, look at verse 19 again. Notice... In the second half of verse 19, singing and making melody. Now, why would Paul use both those words if he intends them to mean exactly the same thing? Singing refers to producing music with the human voice. Making melody is literally, in the Greek text, psalming. Singing and psalming. The word that can and often does mean to pluck a stringed instrument. So it's possible to hear Paul was referring both to singing with the human voice and to the use of instruments. There's a third New Testament argument for the use of instruments in worship, and it's the practice of heaven. The practice of heaven. In heaven, the church will worship God with singing accompanied by instruments. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, the four living creatures, that is those majestic cherubim and that exists before the throne of God, and the 24 elders representing the church throughout the book of Revelation, fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp, and they sang a new song. Now, whether it will specifically be a harp or whether it will be some other musical instrument, the point is there are musical instruments used in heaven in the worship of God. So while I can respect those who come to different conclusions from the biblical data, I certainly cannot agree with them. To me and to the other elders of this church, the biblical evidence is completely overwhelming that it is acceptable to use not only the human voice, but all the kinds of musical instruments that exist to bring glory and praise to God. There's a fourth insight into music and worship found in verse 19. The attitude of music in the Christian's life. Notice verse 19 
speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart. That prepositional phrase explains how we are to sing with your heart. It's not talking about in your heart, as some translations have. doesn't mean you're to do it privately as opposed to publicly, internally as opposed to externally. It's with your heart. Heart here refers to your entire inner self, your immaterial being. That means our worship and music is not to be half-hearted, but wholehearted, done with enthusiasm, with energy. It shouldn't be merely external, but internal, with genuineness, with sincerity. Colossians 3 puts it like this, Colossians 3.16, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Our singing is to be with our hearts and from our hearts. As Jesus told the Samaritan woman, we're to worship not only in truth, but in spirit, with our whole being. Our worship in music is to be internal and authentic. It's to be passionate. It's to be active. That means more than just moving your lips, letting words come out of your mouth. It means when we sing, your heart is engaged. You are participating And your whole life is a life of worship. So when you sing, it's merely the overflow of that reality. Let me put it a different way. God finds singing that is unattached from the heart and life revolting and disgusting. He said this through his prophet Amos. Amos prophesied in a time when Israel was still going through the motions, but their heart wasn't true to God. Listen to what God says through Amos. In Amos chapter 5, Verse 21, he says, I hate, I reject your festivals, that is your annual festivals that I told you to do, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, remember now, God commanded them to do that, I will not accept them, and I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Now watch what he says in Amos 5.23. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. Why? Because it was just external. It was just form. Their heart wasn't in it. Verse 24, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In other words, get your heart right with me. Don't just go through the form. I find the form of your music noise and disgusting, and I won't listen to it. That's what God said. When we sing, we're to be sincere, we're to be authentic, we're to really mean what we're singing, and we're to sing from a life that reflects a worship of the true God. And we certainly shouldn't just be standing there not singing at all. You know, our family attended a church back a couple of years ago where very few people around us were singing. In fact, I I felt a bit conspicuous. I always feel a little that way, but you know, this particular occasion, I'm standing there and I'm singing out and nobody else is singing and they're all sort of looking at me like, what's wrong with that guy? I can tell you this, where that's true, there is not the Spirit's presence because where the Spirit is, he produces a love for God-centered music. You say, well, you don't understand. You have never heard my voice. Listen, I can't sing. Don't worry about that. Listen, when you get to heaven, God's not gonna say to you, You know, your voice is so bad that I wish you had just kept it quiet and not sung to me. You think God's going to say that when you stand before him? No, of course he's not going to say that. He's commanded us all to sing with our hearts to him. Make a joyful noise. It's okay. Don't just lip sync. 
Be passionate, sing out, not for your neighbor, but so God is pleased as you're singing with your heart to him. There's another attitude at the very end of verse 19. Not only with our hearts, but notice, to the Lord. The Greek word for Lord there is kurios. Every other time that word is used in in Ephesians, it's referring to Jesus Christ. Paul's point is this. We are to sing to Jesus Christ with our hearts to our Lord. As we sing and as we play, we are to make a conscious, intentional decision. You should have made this decision this morning as we sang. You should have immediately reminded yourself that Jesus Christ is the audience to whom I'm singing. And you should sing and play in a way that you are intentionally directing your worship to the Lord just as if he were standing on this platform this morning. Let me just ask you honestly and sincerely, how would your worship and music have been different this morning? How much more engaged would your mind have been? How much more would it have been with your heart if Jesus Christ had been standing on this platform? That is how we are to worship when we sing. Worship and music must be a priority for every one of us. Why? Because God commands it. He's prescribed music and worship as one of the ways we express our worship to Him. And it should be offered to God from our hearts. The focus is to be on the lyrics, both to teach one another horizontally and vertically to express our praise to God Himself. Music directors and choirs and every kind of musical instrument, those are acceptable. And they can help organize us and lead us and support our worship. But in the end, each of us is to truly worship Christ as if he were here from our hearts. Music is an amazing gift. It's really a gift of heaven. Music existed in the presence of God before he made this world, before he made the universe. The angels sang in celebration of God's creative power as he made everything. God himself sings. Music will be our preoccupation forever, and it should be the preoccupation of every true believing heart here. You know, I think Psalm 150 is a fitting conclusion to not only our study, but to the Bible's inspired songbook. Turn with me to Psalm 150. This is the call. As the inspired songbook of Scripture ends, this is the crescendo on which it ends. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. What do we praise God for? Verse 2, praise Him for His mighty deeds, what He's done, His work of creation and providence and redemption. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. In other words, praise God not only for what He's done, but for who He is, for His grace and His mercy and His compassion and His love and His holiness and His righteousness. How do we praise Him? Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. May God help us to understand that He has commanded and prescribed worship in music. And it is to be done with our hearts, from our hearts, addressed intentionally in our minds to our Lord Jesus as if he were standing here and we were worshiping him in person. Anything less is a stain on the nature and character of God. May God help us individually and corporately to be a singing church. 
Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part six of The Holy Spirit's Influence. Tom will have part seven for you on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word. And we do hope you'll join us then. Now, here again is Tom with some closing thoughts for us. You know, Bill, we've looked at a lot regarding what the Bible teaches about music, but if I could just say this to each of us, in the end, we are to praise and worship our God through the instrumentality of music. As Luther called it, the greatest gift he's given us next to the Scripture. And so it's important that you do that, whether you have great musical talent or not, whether you have a a wonderful, beautiful voice or are one that's not so beautiful as you would desire. In the end, God invites, in fact, he commands our worship in music. And his great heart finds joy and delight when it's done from a sincere heart in true worship, regardless of the level of our own personal skill. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.